As we continue our study in Acts 24, um, we, we're kind of, again, in this last section of the book of Acts where a lot of the time, well, actually all of this time from now on, Paul's going to either be in prison or he's going to be on the way to prison, um, something to that effect. And it, it covers about four years, maybe a little bit more than that. And there's a, you know, an uncertainty. If you're just thinking about it from a human perspective, there's an uncertainty for Paul. Um, he doesn't know how all of this plays out. Paul is smart enough to know there's a lot of politics involved and, and all of this other. And he doesn't know exactly how everything will play out. But What's so amazing about Paul is it doesn't seem to matter. It doesn't seem to matter how good or how bad, how dangerous, how safe things are. He just continues to be consistent in walking with God, being a witness wherever he is. And so we find him now, and he's, he's now in Caesarea. He's... He's in prison, he's, he can't leave, although don't think of prison in terms of you know, a cell that he's in. And he's, they're waiting for the, the Jewish leaders who's, who've accused him of all of these things to come um, up to Caesarea. So they're there, and now they're appearing before the governor, Felix. And it says this, it says, and after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, your um, in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. So again, we, we've we get the story, there's, there's Paul, and he's being accused of all these things, but now instead of being in the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish leadership, or being you know, in the hands of a mob, he's there before the Roman governor. And he doesn't know, um, again, how everything's gonna play out, but he understands some things about Felix. And you can tell in just his short statement about Felix, he says, knowing that for many years, for many years, 
you've been a judge. Felix is kind of unusual in a way because he's been governor for about six years at this point, which usually a governor's term was about, term was about two years. And they would sometimes get reappointed, but oftentimes there would be uh, turnover. Um, and he's been there for six years, and Paul knows that he is not new. He's not going to be lied to. He's not, you know, he's not just, you know, f you know, fresh from Rome and has no idea about all of the politics and the, the you know, the, the religious mix that's going on here. And so he's going to speak accordingly. He's, he's, he understands even what Felix's reputation is. Felix could be, could be viewed as ruthless. He wasn't really good at the, the po politic side. He understood it, but he wasn't really good at it. If he wasn't good at doing all the things you needed to do to keep there from being a rebellion. But he apparently was really good that once you rebelled, he was really good at knocking your head together and putting you out. And you have to keep all that in mind because that helps us when we go and look at Tertullus. But before we get to there, I, I wanna go back to this really important point that, that Paul is going to make here. He's already made it before the Sanhedrin. And even before that, you know, I wanted to, you know, talk about why this concept is so important today. And, and it's, it's, it's something that whenever I do like marriage counseling, what I try to do with, before people are getting married is I try to have them have conversations I hope they've already had, but sometimes yes, sometimes no. And I want them to talk about important things that, and what we're looking for, and I tell them this up front, what we're looking for is we're looking for deal breakers. You know, deal breakers are, right? They're like, you know, someone says, I wanna have 12 kids, and someone says, I don't wanna have any kids. It's a deal breaker. I'm not sure you two should be married. Okay, because you can't even compromise that. You can't go, well, let's do six, right? Zero or 12, right? That's, that's it. You know, some people in Hawaii, especially, you'll find people that'll be like, you know, one will be like, I cannot live anywhere but Hawaii. And then the other person will be like, I don't want to live in Hawaii at all. I will live anywhere else but Hawaii. It's a deal breaker. Paul is putting out there what for, for some of the Jewish people is a deal breaker. And it's interesting because that deal breaker, it's, it's in our culture much, much more of a deal breaker. And what is he, what is he putting out there? He's, he's talking about the resurrection. He's, for the Sadducees, that's a deal breaker. The Sadducees do not believe in the supernatural. They do not believe in anything. They don't believe in the angels, anything, no miracles, nothing. Everything is natural. They still have you know, some concept that there's God and God created and all this, but it's really like God is just leaving us alone. And so they have this, it's a deal breaker. They can't in any way accept this Christianity because it talks about the resurrection. And the resurrection is essential, it's vital. Well then you have the Pharisees, and the Pharisees, they, they believe in the supernatural, they believe in the resurrection. What for them is the deal breaker is that Jesus Christ is resurrected. They, they believe that someday there will be the, the resurrection of the dead. On Wednesday night, we looked at some Old Testament passages and we looked at several places where resurrection was talked about in the Old Testament. It's not a Christian innovation. But what's a deal breaker for them is that Jesus Christ is the first to be resurrected. In our culture today, 
We live in a culture that is dominated, the worldview that dominates our culture today is it's called different things, but one of the things it's called is scientific naturalism. And scientific naturalism in and of itself isn't wrong. Scientific naturalism talks about how we can explain things scientifically. It talks about how things happen in, in, in nature. And it kind of, you know, says, you know, if we want to prove something to be true, then we have to be able to, to um, observe it and we have to be able to repeat it. If we can't observe it and you can't repeat it, it's not true from a scientific natural viewpoint. So far, so good. But here's where the line gets crossed. The line gets crossed, and it's not by all people who believe in scientific naturalism. All of you believe in it to some extent. But it's when you say that scientific naturalism is the ultimate, the only explanation of truth. Therefore, Nothing exists outside of the natural world. There is nothing. There is no supernatural. Any supernatural can be explained in a natural way. Christianity, for 2,000 years, true biblical Christianity, has at the heart of it what has been at the heart of it for 2,000 years. And that is the belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not a figurative resurrection. Not like, oh, you know, the disciples resurrected Jesus in their hearts. You know, because they took what Jesus taught and they lived it in such a way that it was as though Jesus was alive. No. From the very, very beginning, the followers of Christ were willing to be imprisoned, to suffer, to die upon the belief that Jesus Christ, historically, in history, came back to life, rose from the dead. It's a deal breaker with much of our culture. Much of our culture can't embrace that because they believe that the natural world is all that there is. They believe that unless something can be observable and repeatable, it cannot be true. And, you know, I've thought about this. I've thought about setting up a scientific exper experiment for resurrection and, you know, ask for some of you to be volunteers where, you know, you... We could have you die in some way and then try to bring you back to life. Um, but nobody wants to volunteer for that. So, okay. It's not observable. It's not repeatable. It's a deal breaker. And that leaves the world in a quandary because it's going to reject Christianity out of hand. Or it's only going to accept Christianity as a philosophy. It's gonna be this philosophy that can go and be compared to all the other philosophies and you can choose it if you want or you can choose parts of it and then kind of piece together other philosophies and then come up with your own. But it's going to reject Christianity or just demote it which means the world now is left to itself to look at its problems and try to figure out what to do. And this is how we can kind of divide much of the rest of, and I say the thinking world, okay? Because there's a lot of people in the world that don't think. But the people who actually think, and they actually look at the problems in the world, and they actually think about how can we solve the problems in the world, they can basically be divided into two camps. And one is this, this belief that somehow, some way, we can save ourselves. That somehow, you know, we're gonna figure this all out. 
We're going to figure out how somehow we're going to, you know, get rid of all of the, you know, the animosity between peoples. How we're going to move past any sense of, you know, competing for the same resources. Um, how we're going to, f- to identify with different groups and then to somehow our group kind of gets pitted against another group. That somehow we're going to figure all that out. All the, the conflict between nations. Somehow we as human beings will figure that out. There's a lot of people who believe that. A lot of people give their lives to that very thing. They're trying to develop the philosophies. They're trying to develop, um, you know, the, the different ways to do the economy. And you know what's different about today from when I was growing up and then you just keep going back is that people are, are talking more about these things and some people are actually trying these things. You know, there's, there's, you know, there's this belief that if people just had um, education and if people just had a certain level of income that, that the world would suddenly become a better place. There'd be less crime. There'd be less people in need. And it, and it, and it, sounds, it sounds great. It sounds like, hey, let's, let's guarantee that everybody has a certain level of income. All of their needs are met. Sounds great. And then we'll become a more productive, a better world, a better society. We won't be fighting over stuff. Um, you, know, we'll, we'll, you know, all of us will be able to sit around and, and you know, think great thoughts and try new things and not worry about whether we're going to survive. It sounds so wonderful. Anybody paid attention to what went on during COVID when the government started handing out money like candy? And then all of a sudden, when COVID was on the decline in its influence, and we had this weird problem in, in the United States where we had way more jobs than people willing to work. Why were they not willing to work? Because some of them were making more money by having it given to them than going back to a job. It's human nature. It's what the Romans did. You know why the Romans had slaves? The Romans had slaves because they didn't have technology. We have technology. So we don't have to have slaves to run our household. You know, we've got the washing machine, the dishwasher, all of these things, you know, to make things happen. But the idea of slavery, when it was justified in Roman society, part of the justification was this. It was, look, we have these slaves to do all this stuff for us so now we can be more serious about the important things in our society. We can get together and debate and discuss politics and issues and laws and make a better society. You think that's what the Romans did with their spare time? No. They did what we would do. More time, more time to play. More time to waste. More time to find ways to entertain ourselves. It didn't push them to become a better society. It sounded great. It sounded great in theory. But human nature wasn't that way. You take away the drive that we have because we need to do things, most of us stop doing things. Very few of us, even though we may fantasize about it while we're sitting at our job or our second job and we're thinking, man, if I just had more time, I would write that novel, I would you know, finish that play, I would you know, fix those things in my garage, you know, whatever it is. And then when you have time, those things don't get done. 
The world believes that it can save itself even though we have history that says cannot, will not, does not. The other thing the world believes is if, it, if, if the part that says, okay, we cannot save ourselves, there's no help coming, then, it's, then we're doomed. There is no hope. It, we may not be doomed in my lifetime, but really everything that I do in the bigger scheme of things, it's just gonna be erased from existence. It's gone. We're doomed. People give in to, might as well just live in the moment. Might as well just get what I can from this life right now. Don't wanna miss out. They even have acronyms for these things. Christianity offers hope. Christianity offers another way. But that hope and that other way goes through the cross of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, the natural world can accept the cross of Jesus Christ. People die. But the resurrection, it's a problem. And so we live in a world that at best can accept the philosophies of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, which are better than not trying to follow the teachings of Jesus or not trying to follow the philosophies of Jesus. But it's not the hope that Jesus brought to this world. And so we look at this text and we look at, first of all, the Jewish leaders. Understand, not all Jewish people were opposed to Christianity. But some of the key leaders were. And they were for different reasons. It wasn't simply because they hated Christians or they hated Jesus. A lot of it was because they just loved themselves. And they loved their power and they loved their position. And they did not want to see that threatened. Another part of it was they didn't like to lose. And they realized that if more and more of these people, first of all, those knucklehead Pharisees, if they start believing in the resurrection of Jesus, and then they have all the people on their side, then they see like we're gonna become a smaller and smaller minority, we're gonna have less and less influence because they're following Jesus. They don't wanna lose. And so Paul becomes, you know, really important for them to try to deal with. We've talked about the, the political context that, that repeatedly there's rebellions against the Romans and they keep getting put down. And within about 10 years, the Romans are finally going to say enough and they're just going to wipe out Jerusalem. And so these Jewish leaders come and what we see in the first few verses is we see the presentation of their quote-unquote case. And we see some things that happen right off the bat. First of all, um, they hire someone. They have a spokesperson. We're not sure who this person is. Is there only mentioned here? There's some kind of an attorney. They, he seems to be skilled in speaking to Roman leaders. And so that's the first thing we see. And then the second thing we see is from the very first word that Tertullus opens his mouth, he's lying. He's lying. He's insincere. He says, since through you we enjoy much peace. You know what really was happening? There was peace, but there was peace because Felix kept authorizing the Roman army to go kill everyone who disagreed with him. But the way Tertullus brings that out is, thank you for the peace. And he says, and since by your foresight. One of the things even the Romans complained about Felix was that he had no foresight. They said he ruled like a slave. He was actually a freed slave. He kind of worked his way up. They said he ruled like a slave. It wasn't a compliment. 
He had no foresight. He dealt with whatever was right in front of him and then moved on. And then he says, reforms are being made. There's no reforms. The Jewish people hated the Romans more after Felix than before Felix. You know how they do those surveys and during, uh, between presidential you know, elections and they'll be like, usually it's like two years, do you feel that you're better off today than you were two years ago? And then you'll get some kind of response. If they did something like that back then, it would have been nobody felt like they were in a better situation. And yet Tertullus is sitting here saying, reforms are being made. And then he says, in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. Thank you for killing us. Thank you for persecuting us. Thank you for stealing our jobs and installing your own people. Thank you so much. That's what he's really saying. He's lying from the very beginning. There's nothing truthful that comes out of here. And you can imagine when he starts talking about Paul, he's going to lie even more. And I think it's an important point that we need to understand as Christians. It's, it's one of the reasons as Christians it's hard for us to really you know, identify with any political party. And it's because enemies of Christianity, they don't have to be honest. Enemies of Christianity don't have to fight fair. They don't have to rely on truth. They can, they do, but they don't have to. We do. We do. If we're representing Christ and we're standing against the world or we're defending ourselves because we've been accused, we need to represent Christ even when we do that. And somehow, I can't think that if Jesus were speaking here to, to Felix, that he would be lying to Felix like this. Oh, Felix, you're so awesome and cool. Thank you. No. In fact, when you find Jesus speaking to the governor in his time, Pilate, Pontius Pilate, you don't get any of that. And you're not going to get that from Paul. They don't have to fight fair. But it's not really about them. It's about us. We have to realize that we don't have that option. That every time we want to shade the truth, every time we want to to, to say things that are wrong, whether it's intentional or not, we're hurting their witness. Because the witness that we, that we stand for is we stand to witness for Jesus Christ who called himself the truth. It's one of the things when I, when I started studying um, at seminary and, and I started studying like the Bible and how the Bible came to be and especially when it came to the New Testament and you know you read all the scholars writing about how you know the New Testament was written and, and some of the more liberal scholars were talking about how 100 years later Christians started making up all these supernatural stories. And then it was found out that there's manuscript evidence and other historical evidence that shows that these books couldn't have been written 100 years later. They were written much closer. But of course, if you're a scholar and you've published a book, it's hard to walk it back. But in all of the ones that I would read, even sometimes those supporting the truth of Scripture, and especially of the New Testament, very few of them would give enough credence to this would people who, who were willing to suffer and die for 
their Lord and Savior who they called the truth, would they in any way be thinking it's okay to lie in the name of the truth? I don't think so. I don't think so. It doesn't mean that Christians and you know, later centuries didn't unfortunately you know, kind of embrace that kind of a strategy. But if we're representing Jesus Christ, we don't have the option to be dishonest. We have to fight fair. And that's what Paul does. And if you look from verses 10 through 21, we get Paul's defense. You see, because he's being accused, he's being accused of of stirring up riots among all the Jews. One of the reasons Luke is writing Acts is to show you, like, you know, who's actually stirring up these riots? Is it Paul? Is it Paul getting everybody together, getting everybody angry and riled up? Let's go storm the synagogues. It's like, no. Paul's coming to town. He's teaching. People are hanging out in people's homes. And it's always either the Gentile or it's the Jewish people who are getting so upset that they attack Paul. But of course, in the interpretation of Tertullus, Paul's out there, you know, poking the bear, causing problems. About the only thing he kinda says that's kinda true is that he's the ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. It's kinda remotely true. Doesn't really use the right language, but it's remotely true. And he says he even tried to profane the temple. And if you remember, they were accusing him of bringing a Gentile into the temple. But you notice what's missing from Tertullus. What's missing is there's no evidence, there's no witnesses, there's only accusations. But remember, it doesn't have to fight fair. Verses 10 through 21, we see Paul. And what Paul is going to be able to do is he's going to be able to speak truth. And he's going to be able to speak truth in in such a way that, that it's hard to criticize him. And he's representing for us what we should be doing, whether we're being accused or not. And that's that we should live above reproach. Again, it doesn't mean that we won't be criticized. It doesn't mean that people will misinterpret what we say or, or they'll get upset at what we do. So it's not trying to avoid criticism, no. Living above reproach just means I am going to, be, I'm going to live in a faithful way. I'm going to live truth. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to love even though love sometimes is going to make me have to take controversial stands. I'm going to live above reproach. And we see that in Paul's words. Notice, all he says about Felix is, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation. That's all he says. He doesn't say, you've been a great judge. (laughs) He doesn't say, you've been awesome. He doesn't butter him up. Half of what Tertullus says is these fake compliments to Tertullus, but not Paul. Paul just says, you've been judge over this nation. So, hey, I'm going to make my defense. And then he starts to present facts. He says, 12 days ago I came, I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And he's saying, There was, you you can go, you can look at the records, you can ask people, I wasn't there. You know, I wasn't there trying to stir up a crowd. I didn't even do what I normally do, which is go to the synagogues and, and teach about Jesus. I didn't even do that. If anything, he just went to his fellow Christians and spoke with them. But he's he's saying, like, I was just there being, doing what any Jewish person would do who's been away. I was going to the temple. I was, I was going through the ceremonies. 
And he calls them out. He says, they can't prove it to you. They have no evidence. In fact, he says, the one evidence that they could have is curiously absent. Where are the people who accused me of profaning the temple? They were those Jewish people from Asia who were so angry. They've been following Paul for months. They're so angry. And he's like, why aren't they here? Doesn't that make sense? It's almost like Paul wants to say, if I was going to give Tertullus some advice on how to win this case, I would say, like, why not bring those witnesses that are accusing me of these things? Why not do that? Well, we don't know 100% sure why they didn't do it. But my suspicion is, if you've got, if you're trying to present your case as we're the reasonable ones and Paul's the crazy one, the last thing you want to do is bring in a bunch of witnesses that are crazy enough to disrupt their lives and follow Paul for like two or three months. They're so angry. That's the last thing these Jewish leaders want to see displayed before the governor. But Paul, he doesn't attack. He just states facts. He doesn't say, you're really believing these guys? Do you know what I heard these guys say last week about you, Felix? You know? Do you know that just a couple days ago, they were willing to attack your soldiers to get to me? You want to believe them? Paul doesn't do any of that. Just states the case. States the facts. He's uncompromising about the truth, but he still is skilled in presenting the truth. Not skilled in the way of being manipulative, but just communicating to Felix in a way that Felix could understand. But here's what I really think is kind of the key to this, and I think it's one of the reasons we, we read there where he says, I cheerfully make my defense. And I know nobody there understood it. None of the Jewish leaders understood it. Felix didn't understand it. Tertullus didn't understand it. I cheerfully make the defense. You know why I think Paul said, I cheerfully make the defense? Because he's like, every time you let me talk, I'm going to talk about Jesus. I'm going to talk about the gospel. I cheerfully make my defense because my defense is going to center on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. My defense is now me being able to bring the gospel to the, the number one person in charge in this area. It's almost like he just wants to look at Tertullus and the Jewish leaders and say, thank you. <laughs> you know, thank you for the opportunity. They thought they had gotten him to this place where, you know, when they say, um, in verse 8, when they say, examine him yourself. Remember, they offered no evidence, offered no proof. They knew that when the Romans wanted to examine you, that often meant they would whip you until you told the truth. So that's what they want to see. Examine him. But Jesus is like, I mean, Paul is just like, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. And that's when he gets back to this point that he had made earlier. He first of all says, this isn't a sect. This is the way. Okay, this is the way. This isn't the way for some Jewish people. This isn't the way for just Jewish people. This is the way. It's not a sect. It is a fulfillment. And so he says, it's, it's, it's not a sect. It's the way. But then he says, here's what the real issue is. The real issue is the resurrection of the dead. He said, there's ample evidence to show that I follow the law, I follow the prophets, 
There's ample evidence to show that, show that my faithfulness is in God and God alone. He said, what the real issue is, it's the resurrection. In verse 15, he says, I have a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. In verse 21, he repeats what he had said in the Sanhedrin. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. He keeps coming back to the resurrection. And we know when he spoke to the Sanhedrin, we know that that prompted the Pharisees to start to really consider what Paul was saying. Because now they had to really understand, because they believed in the resurrection, they believed that someday there would be a resurrection of the just and the unjust. They believed that, and they believed that that would be inaugurated by the Messiah. Now Paul had gotten to them, them to the point where they had to really make a decision. Is Jesus the Messiah? The Sadducees, they weren't gonna accept it in any way. But Paul's come back to this, to this resurrection. And, and he's talking about specifically here the resurrection of the dead. But we know from what Paul talks about, everything is precipitated by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you joined us on Wednesday, you, 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 know, you heard some of this from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And this is when Paul's writing this letter. And he's writing this letter to this church that has all kinds of problems. They're, they fight over everything. They divide over everything. There's, there's pride and all this other stuff going on in this church. And Paul ends the letter by writing to them about the importance of the resurrection. If you go to chapter 15 in 1 Corinthians, you know, from verse one through about verse 11, he talks about all the evidence for the resurrection. He mentions prominent people, prominent people who the resurrected Jesus um, appeared to. And in a sense, he's saying, here's the proof. Cephas, Peter, you all know Peter, you all respect Peter. Jesus appeared to him. James appeared to James, another leader in the church. He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of you at this point, this is about 25 years later, most of you at one point either know somebody who say they saw the resurrected Jesus or know somebody who knows somebody. You know, kind of like in Hawaii, when you meet somebody on the mainland and they say, they, oh, you're from Hawaii, I'm from Hawaii. And then you ask them like the typical questions. Oh, what high school did you go to? And then they'll tell you, or, or you ask them what their name is and they'll say they're from Hilo and you'll go, oh, do you know the so-and-so Wong's from Hilo? That's my auntie. And then all of a sudden, you know, you're connected. You know, two or three degrees of separation there. Well, at this point, the, the Christians, especially the ones in Jerusalem, they all know somebody who knew somebody or who, or who saw Jesus themselves. Paul's laying out this to the Corinthians. And then he says, here's the importance. He says, in verse 12, now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how come some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised." For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. 
then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of, of, of all people most to be pitied. Is there any wiggle room here to have a Christianity without the resurrection? Not according to the Bible. Not according to Paul. Paul didn't say, Peter loved Jesus so much that he resurrected Jesus in his heart. It's not what he says. The apostles loved Jesus so much. All of the 120, those, you know, the, the faithful women that followed Jesus, including his mom, they loved Jesus so much that, that they collected all of his teachings and they said, his teachings is like he's resurrected. No. He appeared. They saw. Even the Apostle John will write a couple decades later, we touched, we saw, we heard. There is no wiggle room when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Any church, and there are churches, there are churches that consider themselves Christians that have abandoned the historic Christian faith because they've embraced more and more this idea of scientific naturalism within their, within their beliefs where the resurrection is just a symbol. It's just a symbol. It's just a metaphor. That's all it is. Paul doesn't give us that. He doesn't give it. He doesn't give us that at all. And you might think, why is the resurrection so important? Why can we not try to have it both ways? I wish we had time to do another whole sermon just on this section from 1 Corinthians. But again, that's what we try to do on Wednesday nights. We try to study those a little more closely. But let me just summarize, and I hate to summarize because I know sometimes it creates questions that I don't have time to answer. But let me summarize. Why must we believe in the resurrection if we're going to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ? The resurrection is, is evidence that God was with us and that God is with us and that God will come again. It is evidence that God loves his creation so much that he will enter into it. He's not the deistic God who just sits back and says, let's just see how this all turns out. He is the God who loves. If we believe in a God who loves, we need to see that there is a God who will enter into his creation and do what is necessary to save that creation. The need for the resurrection also keeps Christianity, it keeps Christianity all about grace. The fact that the Son of God had to become, take on flesh, live in this world, be killed and then resurrected, that if that, that had to happen to give us any hope in our own lives and any hope for all humanity, the fact that that happened means that we cannot save ourselves. It is all about grace. It also shows us that, that what needs to change is not just an attitude shift. What needs to change is not just, let's just try harder to be good. The fact that God had to intervene supernaturally and intervene in such a way that following the death of Jesus Christ or the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that shows us we cannot do it on our own. No matter how hard we try, 
It is not hopeless. There is hope. The hope is through Jesus Christ, but the hope is not through us. It's not through humanity evolving and getting better and, and suddenly being able to overcome all that has afflicted us throughout human existence. It is evidence that the only way we can be united in Christ is, I mean, that we can be united is through Christ. If we want that unity to be founded on God's love, it's the only way. That's what the resurrection shows us. And if we lose the resurrection, we really lose the concept of grace. If Jesus was just a great man who gave us some great teachings and died, then we can do it ourselves. We just got to keep working at it. But because of the resurrection, everything else, everything else that we believe about Christianity is connected. The idea of grace, the idea of new life, being a new creation. And then it also points to how we should live. That we're to live according to the power of the resurrection and not according to the power of this world. That the same power that resurrected Christ is the same power that makes us new and that power comes from God and this is the God who is love. It's all connected. Don't think that there can be anything, any Christianity where there is no resurrection. Most of you know me. You know that I don't think I'm not always thinking about, oh, miracle this, miracle that, supernatural this, supernatural that. Every time something goes wrong in my house, I don't think demon. I think Koa, my dog, you know, or something like that. You know, I don't think like that, that way. It's just not how I am. I still believe God does and can act supernaturally. But one thing I know, I know for sure, at least one time, at least one time, God entered into this world and we see it in the life, death, work, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ.